today we are talking about 24 season one episodes one through eight basically going from jack bauer playing chess with his daughter all the way through preventing the assassination of david palmer which in probably an average tv show would seem kind of a weird transition but that's the way we're going to be looking at it today The following takes place on the day of the California presidential primary. Polls open in less than seven hours here in California. We have reason to believe that by the end of the day, an attempt will be made on David Palmer's life. If Palmer gets hit, it'll tear this country apart. There may be an element inside the agency involved with the hit on Palmer. Don't trust anybody. Who are you working for? Jim. Jim? She snuck out. Wait, no! No! What did I tell you, Jack? You might see your daughter again. Our daughter is missing. Saying that relates to an assassination attempt? They must know that I've been assigned to protect Palmer. Janet may know where Kimberly is, so I have to get there. If you want, I'll take you. No! No! I'll do what you want. That's the spirit. Where's Senator Palmer now? He's on his way up. Assemble it. Do you really think that anybody's going to believe that I shot David Palmer? When I started my campaign, I made a promise to you who supported me. Get him out of here! Bow, did you screw me? Don't hurt my family! I'll help! Please! That's it, we're done. Please. Kill the wife and kid! <laughs> Alright, so that gives us a quick preview of what we are going to be looking at today, so... I am definitely excited to be kicking this off. We kicked uh, this whole thing off last week, and Bradley and I went through and did a little bit of overall dissecting of 24 overall, and Joel was not able to make it with us, but he is here today, and so Joel, why don't you go ahead and reintroduce yourself and then share with us your rankings of the seasons. Well, I'm a uh, 24 podcast veteran. Um, I've probably watched and rewatched 24, probably about 24 times. Um, <laughs> I uh, just finished uh, actually finished episodes one through 10 um, the other day. And I am the former um, president of the Bring Back Tony fan club. Um, as far as uh, the seasons go, um, if I had to rank them, I would probably... <sighs> Put me on the spot here, Josh. But I probably have to go season five as uh, number one. Um, <clears throat> I will probably go with I'm really a big fan of season two 
So I'll probably have to put season two at number two. Um, now, when we're talking the seasons, are we talking living up the day too? Or are we just talking like seasons one through eight? Living our day counts, um, but the legacy flop doesn't. <laughs> we, know, we all know how much Joel loved legacy, so. <laughs> well, you just ruined my whole, my, whole, my whole countdown there, Josh. I was going to put legacy like right up there. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll probably go with uh, season four uh, and number three. Um, let's see, five, two, four. Um, as much as I disliked, uh, the Tony Almeida, um, twist, um, I would still put season seven, um, at number four, because I like the overall story of season seven. I just hated the turn at the end. Um, then I will probably, (sighs) this is where it gets tricky. I'd probably go season three after that. Um, live another day. We'll probably come after that. Um, Let's see. What am I leaving out here? Leaving out one. Yeah, season one. Yeah, season one will probably come. Season one will probably come after Living Another Day. Um, then season eight, and I'd probably round it out with season six because I wasn't too much of a fan of season six. Season six just kind of seemed too convoluted and twists and turns just for the sake of twists and turns. And usually when that happens, it doesn't lead to very good uh, overall story. When you, when you have turns just for the sake of having turns, it doesn't really lead to a very good story arc. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we had the same first and last, all three of us. And then the middle was all, a little bit different so very interesting all right well thank you for that so with that we are going to jump into our context for this episode which again is episodes one through eight of season one going from midnight until 8 a.m and so we are gonna go into something here that bradley um wanted to start with here so why don't you go ahead and Take us off. Yeah, so uh, I have been rewatching uh, season one. I rewatched uh, the first eight episodes all in one go a couple of weeks ago. Uh, made a load of notes as I was going through, um, and just, just sort of broken this down into general topics as much as I can. Um, so the first thing, I mean, the first thing you rewatching Twenty Four Pilot, and I know, sort of in my head, I knew that this was the case, but you watch these early episodes, the pilot especially, but there are many episodes in this first eight that have this it's really rough around the edges i mean you think about 24 you think about not necessarily the 
the substance of the show. But you think about, you know, the, the title sequence and the split screens and all the sort of the minutia, the little, little things that 24 made its own, the style of the show, the editing of the music, things like that. All of that is very, very rough in these early episodes. So you have a really crackly opening in the first one, in the first episode. Um, you have higher pitched clocks at the end of an act in the first episode, completely different from two onwards. Um, you have, you know, when it comes up along the bottom, the little, the little clocks to sort of remind you of the time the whole way through the episode. There's a beep when they come on screen, which you never hear again after the first episode. Um, and it goes really hard as well. I mean, there's always, there's a thing I think people know <clears throat> that in the first episode, there was a big deal made at the time and, and people who come into it since that there's a big focus on the clocks. There's, I counted, uh, what was it? I think I counted eight um, clocks throughout the first episode. Real emphasis on the clocks. There's the, the analog clock in the blue. I think a lot of people would remember. There's a song that plays at one stage where you can hear them say 24 hours in the lyrics. Makes them <clears> call it the speaking clock. You know, it's a real focus on this is real time, time oriented show. But there's also a lot of the split screens a lot. I think there's one where Jack is making a phone call and he's in three different places on the screen. This is, there's a real, real, real emphasis on time, ticking clock, the beeps, the split screen. The first episode is very rough with some of this stuff, but it is very, very good at throwing you into exactly what kind of style of show this is going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 looking back at it, I, I can see what you're talking about. I, I didn't pick out all those little minutia details, but, but now that you're mentioning it, it's like, okay, that, that is there. And I would probably say that back when it was first created back in 2001, I mean, th- this was like a totally different style and everything. They were groundbreaking several different things with this. So I, so, so to the point, it, it was a little, it was a little rough with some of the things, but they didn't really have a frame of reference or listeners or watchers didn't have a frame of reference to the styles that they were blending together to be able to do that. So I guess they had to make it more obvious on those pieces. And then um, after that, it's almost unnoticeable because you just start getting used to it, I think, or at least I do. And so that's, that's an interesting point that you made though. Every, um, you know, a lot of shows, especially a show that's on the air for as long as 24 was, um, a lot of shows start off a little, you know, rough around the edges. Um, if you look at like the pilot episodes of a lot of these shows, and then you look at the series finales of a lot of these shows, and you can see the the evolution, not just in the characters, but in the the production, um, the way they shoot certain scenes, um, things like that. And I I noticed, you know, when I watched the when I watched the pilot back, it was a lot more. Season one was probably a lot more grounded than uh, subsequent subsequent seasons um which i think 
was probably most of 24's charm because I think one thing that a lot of people took issue with in subsequent seasons was, you know, how big can these 24-hour threats get? You know, how how many bad days can one guy have? Um, I think a lot of people wanted, you know, more of a callback to, you know, season one type threats, which were a lot more personal, a lot more grounded in nature. And I think that, I think that is evident in the way they shoot some of the scenes, the way the production is. It just looks, a li- season one just, it looks like it was shot to look more gritty, um, more um, grounded, I guess, um, than subsequent seasons, which looks which look a lot more, I guess you could say, flashy and, you know, it looks like from season two on, it looks like they were given a little bit more money as far as budget and production cost than they did in season one. And I think you can tell in some of the uh, the way the production and the way they shot some of these scenes. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, a lot of the later seasons are very much, I mean, it, it never, <laughs> 24 never denied that it was an action show, I don't think. But you look at, and I always, I think we mentioned this last week, I'd always look at sort of seasons four and season five as not necessarily the the thing to hold up, but that's the one that you look at and think 24. Or if you think 24, that, you know, you think of the style, the action, the all, all the stuff that comes with seasons four and five, you think of that. Whereas actually, like you say, season one here is very much, it, it, it is that gritty crime drama. <laughs> And crime uh, action thriller, I guess. Um, you know, it, I think there are a lot of people. I think we talked about this last week, didn't we, Josh? That a lot of people at the time, understandably, you know, twenty four is super fast paced. It's it's re- you know it's chaotic. It's brilliant. It's right at you, boom, 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 boom. And you watch it now, knowing the later seasons and how they are. And it actually, it feels quite slow to me, actually. It feels like <clears throat> got a slightly more ploddy, take our time, let's, you know, let's get the pieces where they need to be, but not rush it. That kind, that kind of style disappears later in the show, not to any particular bad effect, but this, it's just very different now um, in season one than it is in later seasons. Um, it's strange, isn't it? It's strange that this is the, the, the model for season one and then we end up with <clears throat> where we end up with. Hmm. Yeah, you look, you look at season one and then you look at season eight and <laughs> you can tell the, the, the differences in the production and the way that they're portrayed. Um, because the one the one thing that I did not like about season eight was that <clears throat> you can kind of set season eight apart from the rest of the series based on not just because you know the change of location from Los Angeles to New York, but it's just you know by the time season eight got there, it was two thousand what ten I think. 
And, you know, we had all these advances in technology and they tried to utilize them into the story, um, you know, with drones and, and things like that. And it just seemed, season eight probably seemed the most, even though the location was in New York, season eight probably seemed like the most Hollywood of the seasons, um, if you get what I'm saying, and the way that it was shot. Whereas season one seemed to be the most um, the most CTU like of of the seasons because of the fact that you know they were just starting out, so they were trying to find the footing. They were trying to see what works, what doesn't, um, which is probably why you know some of the things you saw in the pilot you didn't see again. Um, you know, try to find out what works and what doesn't because. You know, of course, you know, originally they were only scheduled for 13 episodes. So they were just trying to find their footing and see what works and what doesn't. So they could, you know, possibly get a season two. Not even thinking that, you know, we might get another 11 episodes on the other side of this. Mm -hmm. I mean, season one, <clears throat> say we could talk about the style of it. It, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Nightcrawler the the um the Jake Gyllenhaal film from a few years ago and in 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 the way that it just takes its time it's dark at times particularly in these early ones <clears throat> and then seasons four five eight as you mentioned is almost a little bit fast and the furious now there's nothing wrong with either of them it's just it's I feel like as we go through this this set of podcasts and sort of rewatching the show it's going to be a little bit jarring as we kind of see the shift from A to B Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so it it's really interesting, uh, especially now we're 19 years um from when this for first air, which seems ridic ridiculous to me. And so <laughs> but uh, uh that it's been so long. It, I mean I I think about when I was younger, thinking about a show that started 20 years previous, and uh, it, it's just crazy how how we look back at that and it, we can just see how it's such a pivotal uh way that they were doing all these groundbreaking things and really establishing it and, and as we talked about last week they just it's like they just every season they just kept trying to push more and more and more um and and when we get to seasons four and five that's where they like hit like the, the peak balance, I think, probably between the action and the story uh, together. And then they, of course, they, they messed it all up in season six by just trying to push everything the wrong way. But, but yeah, so, but getting back to these first episodes here, it is just interesting to me, some of the things that I had forgotten um, and one of the things I noticed was uh, Milo here in season one. I, I didn't, I totally forgot that he was part of season one. Uh, I just thought he was someone that was in season six only. But, but yeah, so I, I saw that. So that was something that was interesting to me as I was uh, reviewing all of these. I think he ends up being in about, I think it's 33 episodes that Eric Balfour is in over the course of the show. Um, I mean, I, I certainly having seen that on IMDb the other day, I obviously I knew that 
he was in season one, but it kind of didn't occur to me that he was in so much of season one. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I mean, yeah, it, 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 it is interesting to see how they used him and then bye-bye for five years and then come back. He's back, he come. Don't worry, come back to us. <laughs> Yeah, I, I originally thought I thought it was just a cameo. I thought it was just like a blink and you missed it kind of thing, but I didn't realize, you know, how semi big of a of an arc he had in those first few episodes of season one. He doesn't play a huge role, does he? No, he doesn't play a huge role. He just he gets, you know, basically duped by Jack but then again who doesn't so exactly. <laughs> I think in many ways he is the first of many to be duped by Jack <laughs> yeah so <laughs> he, he, he can join the club on that one but I I completely forgotten about him until season six because I, I of course I try to forget a lot about season six but <laughs> <laughs> Well, Joel, you mentioned before about um, season one having originally 13 episodes and then they got back 11. They didn't know whether they were going to do that. And and sort of the initial conception uh, among the creators, the the internal discussions was that this is a 24 hour story or, you know, we're going to set this over a course of a 24 hour day. But had they not got the last 11 episodes to complete 24 hours, it would have been a 13 hour day. It would, have, it would have still been the real time element. It would have just stopped at episode 13. And, you know, not get to get ahead of ourselves next week, but we know that when we get to the end of episode 13, it does very much feel, apart from one scene at the end, that mm-hmm. it's got that closed 13 episode arc and you could just stop watching. You could have not aired anything after that and it would have been a great one season show. The other thing with that is that later seasons... And I don't know how true this is of season one, but later season, certainly I know that there was in the writer's room, it was, you know, we've got a particular story to get to and we want to do. And at this point, we know we need to do this. And at this point, we know we need to do this. But the actual getting there isn't mapped out until the people actually sit down and write that particular episode. So in theory, you know, and that part of the problems of season six of this but you don't actually sort of do the in-between stuff until it's time to get to that episode. Whereas season one, and particularly these eight episodes, and I've heard a lot of examples down here on our our little notes document, but you can see from the very start how fully in control they look of this whole story. From, you know, there are so many moments in this where knowing ahead everything that happens, you can see exactly that they've got a stunning command of they know what this character is going to do in four hours time and they know how to then manipulate this particular scene into looking slightly different once you know that scene later on Mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely and so they 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 definitely had a really good command over that and real good flow in the storyline and it makes sense. Obviously there's some pieces in there. Um, I, I think like a lot of the, the, the pieces there with Kim um, and with Terry, I think a lot of that was just kind of fluff kind of stuff just to kind of fill the space uh, with, with a lot of the things that they were doing. And so um, 
And so I, well, filling space, filling time, just because it's doing real time, but they want to make sure people remember, oh yeah, these people, they're still here in this situation and they're on their way to do this. And 45 minutes later, they're still on their way to do that. <laughs> but, but anyway, so there's a lot of that that goes on uh, throughout all the seasons, but um, but I was reminded of that during these, and some of those were just annoying little reminders. But and that is, you know what I was reminded. You know what I was reminded of. I was reminded of how much I dislike Terry Bauer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to find myself in a minority here, aren't I? In actually liking Terry. <laughs> no. Terry was definitely one of the least liked characters of the whole series, and she was only in one season. (laughs) (laughs) One season, and and throughout the entire series, she was still my my least, my most least liked character of the whole series. Yeah, I don't know if I would go quite to that extent, but but yeah, she was not my favorite. Um, and, uh, a lot of it might've been just the situations she was put in. Um, and, and that, that has a lot to do with it. That, uh, we're not getting to that in this one, but the whole amnesia, um, thing I think was, was kind of weird the way they played that. But, um, I, I think probably the biggest, uh, drawback that, that I noticed in the beginning was, uh, the way that she was reacting to some of the things with uh uh the the supposed uh father i just lost his name um i think karen carroll is his actual name kevin carroll yeah alan york alan Alan york York. yeah and so she's riding around with him and the interactions between them just seemed really weird seemed really awkward and um I, i guess she's being just very trusting um, of a person, uh, there, yeah, naive, and so that, that's the word I was trying to think of is that she just seems to be very naive through um, a lot of the stuff that happens um, with that. But I mean, I mean, there's a lot of her character qualities that I do like, uh, but but there's just a couple things there that's like, eh. But well, you say, I mean, you say it's fluff, and and that is true. There is an element to this where it does feel at times, particularly during, I think maybe three to five i'd say where it does feel like terry and kim are not so much an afterthought but kind of it feels like we have to shoehorn them in because we know that terry and kim being kidnapped is a major part of the story here so we have to find something for them to do i think i think it's episode four where uh, terry and kevin get pulled over by the police which is not particularly interesting but it does also thinking about it come back to what joel said about the realist angle you know it's not the action thriller at this point it's still the fairly grounded human story and although the the, them getting pulled over by the police is not great television it does feel fairly realistic in the sense of he's speeding and that's a possibility i'm stretching it a little bit i i do concede that's true you know there is there is that element to it um but joel you say that terry's the most hated character how do you feel about leslie hope because I've, one of the, I've got a list here of examples of particularly good acting that I feel. And one of the things that I've noted down is <clears throat> Leslie Hope's look of absolute horror at the end of episode six when Nina tells her that the dead body they found is Alan York and she needs to tell Jack. 
the the fact that her face just goes from sort of the the scared, worried, panicky look that we've had for the last five and a half hours to suddenly, oh, I am now in a very bad situation, and it just like that. It it, it is for for all that we criticise Terry, and there are a lot of valid criticisms. Fair enough of Terry. I think Leslie Hope in that particular scene is glorious. Yeah, I actually uh, I remember that scene. Um, it was right after they left the hospital um, to go to go look for Kim, and it was right after uh, Kevin, I guess we can call him now, mm-hmm. um, killed uh, Kim's friend. Her her name escaped me. Janet the moment. York. Yeah, Janet. Um, and right at the end of the episode, that's when Nina tells her that you know, Alan York is basically the dead guy in their, in their morgue instead of <laughs> the person in the car with her. Um, so that, I, the, the look on her face at that particular moment um, kind of told the whole story of her just having a sudden realization of the situation that she's in at the moment, mm-hmm. um, which did a lot to, um, overcome uh the entire episode of me getting annoyed at the sound of her voice um the the, um, the, the screamy sort of cry panicky stuff that she has at the hospital with jack is not leslie hope's best work i don't think it's what she's particularly suited to i have to say Um, yeah that, that 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 really got me when she was in the hospital and jack was gone and she was like jack jack yeah, it doesn't work. Where, 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 is, where is he at? And I and the whole time I was just trying not to cover my ears because the the, the screeching sound of her voice just pierced my brain. But it all kind of went away toward the end because the, her acting when she received that phone call, um, and then she had this realization that okay this man I've been riding around with for the last, I don't know, three hours now <laughs> or something like that is not the man that he says he is. So mm-hmm. it kind of, it kind of made, it kind of made her realize that, okay, what's going on and where is Kim? Mm. So I think that was pretty good acting on her part. She had, she had her moments, you know, throughout season one and Leslie Hope in general you know, even though she's probably not my favorite actress, I have seen her in other roles um, where she's not quite as annoying, um, and she's <laughs> and she's actually a, a pretty decent actress. Um, so I just chalk it up as you know, just maybe that's how her character was written. And in terms of the story element, again, so coming back to the whole um, sort of real real command of plotting, you have that scene at the end of episode six having 15 minutes earlier just just shown to us that actually this guy is a bad guy we don't know that he's not well we we do know that he's not alan york at this point um but i mean actually the the one thing i noticed before that was jack gets to the hospital i think it might be the second or third scene when he's there um Jack tells Terry that someone doesn't want him talking to Janet after, you know, everything that he's gone through over the last couple of hours. 
And at the second, the exact second that he finishes saying those words that someone doesn't want him talking to Janet, Kevin Carroll comes over and introduces himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is, this is about five, six minutes before he goes and kills Janet himself. And, you know, the, the, the real, real clever to actually have that. And you realise it, and say, once you know what's going to happen, you realise, oh, that's why he came over at that particular moment to introduce himself. And there's, there's a similar thing in the episode before, as well, uh, the episode before, where um, obviously Jack goes to get Pentecost's car and the, the body that's in it. Um, there's no... About 20 minutes before that, Gaines puts Kim in the trunk of his car when she's going to alert the cops or whoever it is that drives past. Then Dan and Rick have a conversation about how he's probably already killed her. We don't see Kim at any point from him putting him in the trunk to Jack discovering the body. And so there is that little moment in there again of maybe Kim is dead. And, and, that's, the, and that's the realization of, you see, you see the look of, I guess, momentary kind of horror come over Jack's face in that moment. Um, I kind I kind of wanted, you know, part of me selfishly kind of wanted Kim to be in that trunk, just to, just to see what what Jack's uh, what Jack's reaction would have been the rest of the the rest of the season. Um, but of course, you know, if we lost Kim, we probably would have had to keep Terry. So, if you're asking me to choose between the two, <laughs> you know, I guess I guess we can keep Kim. Um, so, but I, I, I did, I did notice that, that momentary look of, is my daughter the one in that trunk? And, you know, speaking, speaking as a, as a, a father of a daughter myself, I can kind of feel what he was feeling in that moment that, you know, he could never imagine in his wildest dreams that his daughter, that his daughter would be in this situation, much less, you know, dead in the trunk of a car. So I think um, in that in that particular instance, that kind of made the whole episode, you know, from Jack's point of view. Mm-hmm. And that, that makes me think of another um, point too, not totally directly um, related, but it is, um, is with... With, with all the new seasons of 24 that they, the, the last, last one that, that came out, the legacy, they, they kept trying to emphasize the producers kept trying to emphasize that Jack isn't the, the, the center or the focus of 24. It's the 24 hour thing. That's the, the, the center of it. But, but as you, as, as we go back and we watch this season and you think back through all the other ones, it is the story of Jack and, 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 and his story. So, I mean, it is about Jack. And so, and so, yeah, so we're seeing all this stuff from his point of view and uh, it, I don't know. So it just seems crazy how they want to try to change that. It's like, okay, fine. If you want to do a spinoff, do a spinoff, but don't, don't do it. Anyway. So that's kind of going <laughs> a little bit outside of <laughs> this part, but uh, I definitely had that uh, realization going back through this. It is definitely, um, Definitely there, very evident that this is Jack's story. Mm-hmm. 
We talk about yeah, some we, other we, great acting. Yeah. <laughs> so we, 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 can make a whole, we can make a whole another podcast about whether um, whether the, the, the whether Jack is really the center of, of twenty four <laughs> and how poorly and how poorly put together the legacy legacy ha- legacy had the potential to be good if they would have just embraced the the differences um and tried to portray it as a as a different entity from the original series but trying to but trying to say that you know 24 is not about jack and you know it's about the real-time aspect and and you know it's it and bringing tony back and trying to make it trying to make it as as authentic to the original 24 as possible. I think that's where they messed up at. Um, but that's a whole, like I said, that's a whole <laughs> other podcast. But if you, if you look at the original season one, um, the original 13 episodes, um, you could tell that Jack was the focal point. Like there would, there would be no 24 without, Keeper Seven. I mean, it's just he was in every. You could you couldn't go in in season one. You couldn't go maybe two or three scenes without Jack being in. That's how much of a focal point he was in season one. So <clears throat> imagine twenty four season one without Jack Bauer in it. Mm-hmm. I mean. Who 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 was who was gonna step up? Who was the other um, main protagonist besides Jack in season one? You can't find one because everybody everybody besides Jack had antagonistic um, traits to them. So it was like, other than of course David Palmer. But other than other than Palmer, Jack was pretty much the only protagonist throughout season one. So try to take Jack out of the equation and tell me how season one plays out. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. So what are some of the other examples of great acting that you were thinking of, Bradley? Well, the one that always sticks in my mind, I think it would stick in a lot of <coughs> fans' minds, um, a particular line uh, by Ira Gaines. There's no such thing as sort of dead. <laughs> you're either dead or you're not dead. Here, let me show you. <laughs> um, and actually, <laughs> you know, Michael Massey, um, obviously a massive shame that we, we lost him a couple of years ago. He is just superb. And he is so, so good in these early runs. Um, there's a there's a great one in the the following episode when he tells Dan to bury his friend. That's uh, uh, no Rick to bury his friend, um, and he just go and he goes where and he goes in the ground, <laughs> almost as if almost as if it's the most obvious thing in the world, and it is. But it's like, well, okay, you know, it's not what he meant, but it just that's that's the answer. You get. That's the answer you get. Yeah, I, I, rem, I remember. I remember that. I think that was episode five or six. Um, five, um, and then he he. It's not what you say; 
it's how you say it. And I think the way he delivered those lines were, they were very simple lines, but it's the way that he delivered them that, that made them stand out. And I think, um, you know, I, <clears throat> I loved the, the Gaines character. Um, that was, he's one of my favorite villains in the entire series. Um, just because he's one of the few villains that even for a brief moment, he kind of had Jack wrapped around his finger. And I don't think there's, there's not very many villains throughout the rest of the series that you can say pretty much because he had Jack's family, that he's one of the few villains throughout the series that you can say pretty much had Jack, at his beck and call um, to do whatever he wanted him to do. Now, obviously that turned around later on, but it just shows the, <clears throat> the manipulation factor in his character. And the way that, you know, he tried to, he tried to portray himself as, you know, calm and collected, but yet you could see these little, these little bullet points throughout the first few episodes where he starts to get irritated and he just kind of cranks his neck a little bit like, <laughs> like he's like he's trying not to lose his cool but at the same but at the same time you know they're testing his patience um another you know i i, I know in later seasons <clears throat> you know you know how much of an advocate i've been for uh Tony and bringing him back and, you know, things of that nature. But watching season one, especially the first eight episodes, I'm reminded that I didn't really like Tony that much in season one. <laughs> um, and, and to be honest, completely honest, man, it's probably because of the way his character was written. Um, but I actually thought he was the mole through the first um handful of episodes because you know the way he was acting the the shadiness of, of trying to get jack shut down because jack was the one that was getting close to everything and every time he turned around tony was right there trying to shut him down and so through those first handful of episodes you know even though obviously later on it turned out to be somebody else but through those first handful of episodes, I was almost convinced Tony was was the mole um, in on the hit on David Palmer. Well, that's the point, isn't it? That at the beginning, the whole it, Richard Walsh thing of some that there may be an element inside the agency trying to facilitate the hit on Palmer. Yeah, you know, you're not going to early on say, "Oh, it's this person," or make it obvious. There is there is that element. I don't know whether there was an extent to which. <laughs> they weren't really sure themselves who was going to end up being the mole. And so they just kind of left it open. I think, I think actually Carlos Bernard and um, uh, I've gone blank on who plays Nina. It's a rare moment for me. Yeah. I, I, I know, I know who, I know who it is, but the name escapes me at the moment. Anyway, Sarah Clark. Sarah Clark. Sarah Clark. Thank you. Um, I, think, I think they've talked before about how they weren't really sure. And so both of them sort of played it as, well, I, I certainly Carlos Bernard has. Um, you know, I played it as 
if it turns out later down the line that I'm the mole, all of this stuff that you look back on now is going to make sense. Go, oh, okay, well, that was, you know, you can see it. And if it, if it turns out later down the line that, oh, he's not the mole, again, you can look at it and say, oh, it wasn't you know, screaming in your face, he's the mole. Um, it's interesting. I've got, I, I noticed this down, and I thought long and hard about this. You mentioned about not liking Tony, and that's true. I remember that as well. I think everyone remembers that, thinking that Tony at the start is horrible and no one likes him, and then you know you like, go to love him later on. I think, actually, that's a very harsh assessment because it's the, uh, it's the Carmela Soprano, the Skylar White thing of, actually, he is the most reasonable character at CTU. He's the most reasonable character from the perspective of, are you trying, you know, we see, we see the show through Jack. In, in The Sopranos and Breaking Bad, we see the, the show through Tony Soprano, we see the, the, the show through Walter White. So their wives, when they have these moments of, of doubt or criticism or whatever it may be, they seem unreasonable. But actually, in, for Tony, him calling in Mason because Jack keeps going off book, you know, he, he quite, quite rightly points out, I think in episode two, that Mason comes in, goes off to Jack's office, disappears for half an hour and walks out with a limp. Like, you, you know, <laughs> yes, there is an extent to which it feels like Tony's trying to impede everything and he might be the mole, who knows? But, I mean, would you not expect someone to have doubts about their boss if their boss ended up walking out with a limp after sticking, disappearing in the office half an hour later? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot, a lot of what he does, I say, impedes what Jack's trying to do and what we want Jack to do. But actually, he acts fairly reasonably, I think, throughout these eight episodes mm-hmm. of trying to protect the agency. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And also, uh, kind of a spoiler flash forward, um, when we get to season two, the only person, well, there's two, the only people that could get and work with Jack as he was getting back into being pulled back into CTU, was first, the first one was Palmer. Um, that, that ultimately made the convincing, but the only person inside CTU that Jack wanted to work with was Tony. And so I think that's because he knew that Tony was the, the, the stable one, the, the one that he could rely on for, for that. And, and that's a good point. And so, uh, looking at that from, from that angle, I could definitely see that in Tony's character through season one. And we see it in, we see it in the conversation they have in the next episode that we'll talk about next week. Um, but, you know, in episode eight, when Nina phones in trying to get to Jamie, again, another little masterpiece of tension. Um, and, and Tony kind of goes actually before, you know, blowing Nina's cover of being alive here to Jamie. He is, well, he basically keeps Nina and he, he actually inadvertently keeps Terry and Kim alive by not telling Jamie that Nina's on the phone. Yeah, um, quick question. At what, what episode was Nina revealed that actually she was the mole? What episode was that? 23. Mm-hmm. So it kind of makes, makes me wonder, had season one ended in episode 13, like originally planned, do you think Nina would have ever been revealed as the actual mole or they would have ever actually found out who the mole was? I think had it ended at 13, it would have just been that Jamie was the inside person. Mm-hmm. And Nita would have was, been a hero. 
Jamie was the inside person. He was the one feeding the info to Gaines. And ultimately, um, I don't think I wrote it down. I think it's, it's in, I think actually in an episode we'll cover next week. But Gaines, if, if, we, if we are to believe, I think what I've read before, Gaines and Jamie didn't actually know that Nina was working with the Drazens. So anything, anything that Jamie was doing, she was doing on her own. Gaines and Jamie were the communiques. So had we stopped at episode 13, actually there's no reason for Nina to be the mole because Gaines used Jamie and that's it. So basically from episode 14 on was basically like a whole new story, basically. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. That made that made that makes that makes a little bit more sense. I'm kind I'm kind of glad they extended it because revealing Jamie to be the 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 mole that they were trying to find for the previous twelve episodes was be kind of anticlimactic for me. Yeah, but I mean the actual reveal of Jamie is fairly understated. I feel maybe not understated. Maybe that's not the right word. It it kind of it's it's bizarre isn't it because actually there's the scene when um the scene before with jamie where terry calls her and or t- calls ctu to try and get through to jack she gets through to jamie and she tells jamie where she is and what's happened and everything like that obviously that's how games people get to her but there's a real triumphant feeling to the music Cat- sean calorie you know masterful throughout the, the eight seasons um but there there is it feels like a triumph. It feels like Terry's won, that Kevin's going to be um, brought back into CTU. Terry's going to be saved. Uh, now, you know, now we can go and try and find Kim and Jack maybe won't have to try and facilitate the assassination of Palmer, all of this. It, it, it completely blindsides you when five minutes later, Gaines' men turn up and you realise that Jamie was actually betraying her. <laughs> it's it's really clever. It's so clever. Yeah, there was there was a lot of red a lot of red herrings in there in the first uh, handful of episodes. Um, I think I think what they, you know, I don't know this for certain, but I think what they wanted was to make it seem like you know Tony was the antagonist to just kind of throw throw off the scent of it possibly being Jamie. And once once they got renewed for those other eleven episodes, they had to they had to think that okay, we have eleven more episodes, so let's see let's see where we can turn this because we can we can actually make this story better. Um, and I think that's what they did with 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 Nina. <clears throat> but I thought, to be honest, when when Jack first interrogated Nina. And Nina was cleared. Um, I thought that was it. Mm. I thought, okay, Nina's Nina's on the right side of this, so <laughs> Nina's one of the ones he can count on. It wasn't make- until about halfway through that I started to realize that something's not right about this. If you make everyone seem like the mole, and also everyone seem not like the mole, no one is surprised when character A turns out to be the mole, but also everyone is surprised. By character A turning out to be the mole, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, just given the time 
that we have here. I think we're going to go ahead and start wrapping it up and we'll come back to some of these uh, thoughts here um, during, during these probably episodes six through eight a little bit. Um, but then we'll kind of push through and continue on to uh, the middle part of the season. And so tentatively up to episode 17, but maybe we'll stop with episode 13 next week and we'll just kind of see where it goes. And so I, I knew this could be a possibility when we were first starting this. It's like we might get into this and realize, okay, we're not going to be able to cover everything we want to talk about in three episodes, basically. And so, uh, so we might stretch this first season out a little bit longer uh, based on that. Not with not with Bradley's three page full of notes. <laughs> <laughs> I blame I blame the show for being structured the way it is. Sorry, just, yes. just putting that out there. <laughs> uh, that's okay. Well, there's nothing wrong with it, and so it's a great show. It demands a lot of great commentary. Um, obviously, there's some little bits of pieces that can be uh, criticized in some fashion, but uh, but a lot of great stuff. And so we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up with this. And we're going to invite you as our listener to give us your feedback. You can go to our website, 24faithful.com and be able to leave us some feedback. You can uh, write us in. I'm even going to have a number that you can be able to call in. You can call 405-771-0567 and you can provide some audio feedback for us as well. And that could be a really good way for uh, not just giving us your feedback, but we can even share that on the podcast with everybody else as well. And so we are definitely welcoming your opinions. And so there's three of us. There's a lot of things that we agree on, several things that we disagree on. Uh, we love being able to have the different uh, perspectives and discussions and arguments. And uh, it, it we're almost an hour into this and not once did Joel take a shot at Mark. And so I say that this episode has been a success. As much as, as much as I, as much as I tried and fought and, and the, in, the internal struggle within myself to not take a shot at Mark throughout this entire podcast was <laughs> you have no idea how hard it has been for me to not yes. want to take a shot at Mark in this podcast. I've, I struggled with it mightily throughout this entire hour. Yes. <laughs> well, very good. Uh, good to have both of you guys join us for this, and hopefully we'll be joined by some listeners as well, and we'll look forward to diving into the this next section here of Season 1. And we are out.